Okay, if you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We're going to go uh, verses 1 to 13 this evening. Really for the next several, maybe, I guess next week and this week as well, we're actually going to touch on this topic of the end times. Um, so I'm going to begin by reading God's word, then we'll pray and then we'll get into the text. Matthew chapter 13, or sorry, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one uh, stone will be left upon which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these <laughs> excuse me tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled and jesus began to say to them see to it that no one misleads you many will come in my name saying i am he and will mislead many when you hear of wars and rumors of wars do not be frightened those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nations will rise up against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Uh, these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit." Brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it's being recorded, that was recorded for us so that we can anticipate and know what the future holds. Lord, as we look to your word, may it grow in our hearts faithfulness to you and allow us to endure knowing that the Christian life in a fallen world is difficult. So, Lord, help us to be faithful to you as we look to this text, as we remember your words. Give us the attentiveness and the focus to be able to know your word and to apply it to our lives daily. In your son's name I pray, amen. I know most of you probably were not alive at this time, but in 1999, there was this, there was this, oh, there's all this um, news coverage about this thing called Y2K. Uh, some of you guys don't know what that is, but it was at this time where people were panicking because they were afraid that there was going to be some major computer glitch that's going to wipe out all the tech. The computers are all going to not know how to set the timer to 2000, and then everything will be reverted back to zero, and somehow all the technology is just going to stop working. And I remember one of my friends was so worked up by this that he wanted to build a well in, the, in his backyard because he thought, oh, no, we need water. And he 
I mean, if you thought COVID was bad, he was st stacking everything, water, toilet paper, all of that. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh, maybe this is the end. This is it, 2000. And I remember where I was when the time was going down. And I was with my family. I even have one of those 2000 clocks, you know, like the hats that had like lights up and stuff. And it was at that moment I realized something. We were on a family trip. We were not in California. But that's when I discovered at that moment that there are actually different time zones. I was a very slow kid at that time. I did not realize that the world does not happen. It doesn't, like, it's not like everyone in the entire world goes to 2000 at the same time. Like different parts of the world actually become 2000 first and then you, you, know, you kind of see it. So I remember watching it on TV and being stunned by this. Like, wait, it's 2000 in China, but the, it, just, it kept going. And then they showed like Australia and all these different places. Like, wait, 2000 happened and the world has not come to an end. And I realized that when it was our turn, it was like, oh, five, four, three. And I, thought the, I, I really thought the rapture was going to happen. And then nothing happened. It just people just celebrated and then life moved on. And it was just funny because even ever since then, I realized that almost every few months, it almost seems like there, there's always news that it's the end of the world. Something is about to happen. It always seems as if things are just getting from bad to worse and then things are okay. Then it gets bad to worse again and then it gets okay. It always seems like the world is coming to an end. And I know in our day and age, uh, we, we, we feel this. We feel that it seems like things are getting worse and worse. I mean, even if you're going through this text, you might think that it is, it, we're close. We're close. In a sense, it's true. We are closer to the end than we were the day before. But the text here is trying to warn us and really prepare us to know that the reality is that, yeah, this is just what is to be expected living in a fallen world. A lot of Christians are suffering throughout the world, and I think every Christian at that time, and even up to now, are wondering, is this the end? And it's not new. Things are going to go from bad to worse, and there's going to be seemingly momentary peace, and it gets bad to worse again. In fact, if we look at just the totality of Christians that are in the world, most of the Christians are not in America. I think sometimes we think because Americans, Christians, are not really suffering, then that must mean that uh, there is no... Uh, that so things are, are generally pretty well. And even though we feel it more in terms of the cultural shift, it's still not relatively as bad as maybe some of our brothers and sisters in the faith in other countries, in the Middle East or certain parts of Asia. And we will always need encouragement from God's word. Whenever there's moments of fear or moments of doubt, we need to look to God's word to give us encouragement so that we can endure, uh, so we can endure. And Christ here is doing that with his disciples. This is the last week of Jesus' life uh, here or this is in, earthly, in his earthly ministry. Uh, this is about Wednesday, uh, chapter 12. He was really going against the temple and trying to rebuke the scribes. And 13 kind of begins, uh, kind of like a result of that. You remember last week uh, we talked about the, the widow and how she was putting this money in there to just show the, corrupt, the corrupted nature of all the religious systems. Now Jesus and his disciples are, are leaving. And as they head out and uh, really go, uh, going, to toward the end of the going towards the cross in this last week, the disciples want to learn a little bit more about what is to come. Now, I did mention that this week and next week we're going to talk a little about the end time. So think of this as partially like a Sunday school type lesson as well as a sermon. I think Roger likes to use the word lerman, like a lecture sermon type of thing. 
which is good. I think it's it's helpful. That's a helpful word because I think I'm going to go nerdy a little bit about end time stuff. But I want to try to draw the ideas from the text. Uh, when it comes to end time views, I know that there's different people than on different spectrums. So I want just to kind of define the terms first so that at least you know where we stand at SFBC. Uh, in terms of end times, there are some people that are, and when they look at certain passages like this, uh, there's one group of people we'll call the idealistic people. What that means is that they look at a text like this when it talks about the future, and they think this is all allegory. Uh, they think that they're trying to draw from the text some sort of connection to where they are or some sort of spiritual truth that comes from it. Uh, and I think if, as we get through the text, you can find that it's actually not the case, that there, if you just take it literally, uh, it might lead to a different conclusion. Then the, that's the idealistic people. The second are the historic people. These are the type of people that would look at a prophecy in the scripture, and then they look at a newspaper, and then they're going to try to compare and connect the two events. They're going to see, like, oh, okay, see, this is, you, you add up all these dates, you look at all these events, and you look at the newspaper, it matches, and therefore Christ is going to come back in a few days. Uh, this is what, I mean, this has led to different doomsday cults, but... You know, there are also uh, legitimate Christians that hold to this view. I'm not saying all of these are heretical, but, you know, there are some people that hold to this view that are genuine believers. Then there's the, well, the third group, what we call the preterists. This is the people that believe that all of the things that Jesus has spoke about and the apostles, all the, <coughs> all the writings, all of the things, especially when it, when it pertains to prophecy, these are all fulfilled in the past. Things have already uh, happened in the past, so... Uh, Moving forward, it's not going to be some of the things that's revealed in, in God's word. Uh, and then there's the last group we can call futurists, and that's where I think that's where our church, that is where our church stands. We believe that the prophecies are in Scripture pertaining to the end times have yet to come. So they're, we're anticipating that. That's, that's what's going to happen in the future. And I'm going to argue just from this text and for this week and next week why we should hold to a futurist view. Um, because if you look at some of the things that's going on here, uh, it should you can see, I think, hopefully, that the things that, that is revealed here in Scripture hasn't happened in a global sense. So, again, this, this is going to go from a sermon and lecture where I'm going to try to give you just some, some life application type things as well as just teaching in terms of understanding big picture of, uh, of, how, of end time things. But I, want, I do want to break it down into just kind of different sections for us to kind of hang our thoughts uh, so just so the first kind of part of this narrative here, we'll just call it judgment in Jerusalem. The judgment in Jerusalem. Look at Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 2. Uh, as he was going out from the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful building. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So this is Jesus leaving the temple, and as they were leaving, the disciples looked back and was, was marveling about this huge building. And they were talking about the stones here. And back then, um, especially in the temple, this, these stones were like they were huge. They're these big stones, and they were and they were. It took a lot of work to make a stone that big to, build, to be able to build the temple. Um, I don't know if you. Uh, I don't think we think in those terms in terms of just like the. The way that the buildings are made, uh, there's a place in Millbrae, near the Millbrae Bar Station, where I remember there was like a big hole in my kids. I had two kids when they started. Now and the, now they're finally done. I think they're almost done. I mean, yeah, they're not done yet. Uh, we just drove by today, 
And I remember it being just this giant hole to now that, like, you know, building the, laying down the foundation, slowly building this building. And then, you know, today we're telling our kids, hey, remember that used to be this little small thing? And the kids, like, kind of remember it, but they don't really. Um, but it was like a huge hole, and they put a lot of work into it. So you can imagine how great it was back then, where they didn't have modern technology, yet they were willing to, they were able to make these huge stones to build this huge temple. And the, and the disciples, it's not clear on who it is. It, it can be one of the apostles, or it could be one of the other Jesus, one of you know other Jesus followers that was just marveling at this building. And Jesus tells them, "Behold." Uh, and, tell, and Jesus responds by saying, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon which will not be torn down. And again, this is a massive structure here, and I think this event does happen. So there's a sense in which when Jesus is giving a prophecy, some of his prophecies are nearer and other prophecies are further away. Uh, an illustration to think about this is if you look at a mountain, uh, sometimes when you're just like looking straight at it, it may seem like just one giant mountain. But as you get closer, you realize it's like multiple mountains. It's kind of like the Rocky Mountains, depending on what angle you're at. It may look like just one giant mountain. But you can see that as you get closer, oh, there's actually multiple mountains that are just kind of stacked in front of, like, in front of each other. That gives this illusion that it's just this one thing. So here, I think Jesus is talking about a prophecy that is going to happen closer to his time than it is from a longer distance. Because we know from history and even in the book of, uh, yeah, history as well as scripture that the temple does get destroyed in 70 AD. In fact, it was destroyed to the point where there was nothing left. All these great stones, they were removed. Uh, in history, uh, extra biblical sources, it said that these people, not only did they like destroy the top of the building, but they were like, they, they leveled the whole thing and they, they melted these giant stones. They, they, they destroyed everything. And what's left is what, you know, the Jews now in the Wailing Wall, that's the only thing that's left of that temple. Now, there's a question then, it's like, but then Jesus said not one stone will be, turned, will be unturned. Why is there still this wall left? Uh, because I think what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the upper, upper levels of it. Uh, because what's left is really just a lower level of the entire temple. And they had to dig through in order to get that, what the wailing wall is now. But everything above it, they destroyed. There was nothing left there. And this is, again, Jesus telling them that this was going to happen. And if you just kind of look at big picture from the scriptures as well, John was still alive when all this happened. He, he was like a lot older. I mean, he, he, he lived past 70 AD. So he must have remembered as well, like, oh, yeah, Jesus told us all these stones are going to be destroyed, and it actually happened. And it emboldened his faith to be able to be faithful to the end. And I think when we look at some of these prophecies that are fulfilled in the time of Christ or, or near to Christ, uh, that should encourage us that all of God's word is absolutely true. All the things from the Old Testament that prophesy about the coming Savior is fulfilled in Christ. And all the things that Jesus prophesies, it will it either it came to pass in 70 AD like this here, but, and everything else. That means everything about God's word is absolutely true. When you think about the end times, when you're struggling in your faith, you need to remember that God's word is going to be the anchor of your soul. It's going to be the thing that's going to keep you from drifting away from the faith. It's going to keep you from being afraid and nervous about the things of the world. God's word is what's going to anchor your soul and to find peace. In fact, that's why I think at the end of verse 13, he says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. There's a sense in which the, God's word will help you 
endure during difficult times. So he's giving this little short prophecy here, and then it gets fulfilled. And now he goes on and explains more of that. And, and he's, again, Jesus is saying that not one of the, these stones will be destroyed. This happens 40 years after Jesus has set this event. And, uh, and we get to the next scene, which we'll call a worldly leaders. So from verse 3 all the way into verse 6. So, uh, verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the, to the temple, uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So the disciples, here the uh, four, which is interesting that these are the first four that were chosen by the Lord to be part of that inner circle. Uh, they're also going to have this little tutoring session as well. And they want to know, when is all of this going to be fulfilled? Because I think in their minds, they have, they, they had like a, like a missing, they, they a, there's a, there's a, there was something lacking in their understanding of what's, what Christ was about to do. They thought that Christ was going to die. Like they didn't understand that Christ had to come and die for their sins. That's why they oftentimes they were so stunned by it when Jesus said, I'm going to die and in three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. They didn't understand that. They thought, oh, you're the Messiah, so you're going to fix everything. You're going to help overthrow the Roman government. So they're asking him for clar clarification. What does this mean? They're, telling, they're asking him, tell us when is this going to happen? And it was fascinating is that although they're asking, uh, they didn't, they're asking when, they're not actually asking why is this. Why does it have to happen this way? I think what they don't realize is that the temple needed to be destroyed because it's a, really a, show, it's a sign to show them that the religious system, all the things that they see that, that Jesus spoke about in chapter 12, that has to be done away with. That's gone. And that they don't need the temple anymore because they need to look to Christ. But they ask when these things are going to happen instead of why these things are happening. And they ask, what will the signs be when all of these things will be fulfilled? Yeah, the temple will be destroyed and uh, not even, uh, and really the cornerstone of Judaism is going to be done away with. And they're waiting for the kingdom to come. Uh, they didn't think that Jesus would die and they, and they had this kind of wonky timetable in their mind. Um, it doesn't really, they didn't really understand what Jesus had in mind when it comes to coming, you know, dying and then coming back to life and even building the church uh, through these apostles. And Jesus doesn't, and, 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 and the question is, when you're reading this, why doesn't Jesus specify that in 40 years that this is going to happen? Why does he just kind of speak in this way without giving them definitive time? I think is when you look at from this point all the way down to the end of the sermon here or this section, I think the application goes beyond 70 AD. The application goes beyond just the time that they have. Because when they see this temple destroyed, uh, Christ knows that, that was not, that's not when he's going to return. But the things that they will experience, the, thing, the life that a Christian is going to go through, is going to be very difficult. And the reason why Jesus did not tell them is that the, the principles and the realities of being a Christian is going to be hard, and it's going to carry from after the temple falls all the way until Christ returns. And they're called to be faithful till the very end. They're called to be faithful and endure those hard times. And it says here, verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, 
I am he, <coughs> and will mislead many. So Jesus is telling that you'll notice that during this time, there will be many false teachers that will come, many false teachers that will arise and claim that they are the Messiah. And, that, I mean, verse 6, is, many will come in, in, in my name saying, I am. This is what Jesus describes, this is how Jesus describes himself, this is how Yahweh describes himself, as I am. And they will come and they will try to mislead many people. And even in, in, in Scripture has always warned us against these type of false teachers that's going to arise at the end. Uh, there's, uh, there's just always going to be false teachers. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter uh, 2 Verses, we'll start from verse 1. If you want to jot this down, I'll read it to you. Now we request you, brethren, with regards to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our, and our gathering together to him, and that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or letter as if it is from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So that means even at that time when Paul writing this letter to Thessalonians, they thought the rapture already happened. And Paul's encouraging them, no, that hasn't happened yet because there's going to be certain events that's going to have to take place. Because unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as becoming, as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you not know that the restraints, that what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do until he's taken away, taken out of the way. That Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay, with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So it's just saying that there's going to be this antichrist figure, and there's going to already be a lot of these kind of individuals throughout time, but there's going to be one that's going to kind of be the one that surpasses all of these false leaders, and Christ is going to deal with them. Verse 9, that is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send it upon them a deluding influence so they will not believe, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they will all may be judged, do not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. First John also tells us about how there's many antichrists that has already appeared. And that's just the reality that from the time when Christ leaves all the way until he returns, there are going to be many false teachers. There's going to be many people that claim to be God and will say uh, that they're God and they need to follow them. They will, they'll try to mislead many. In verse, uh, so this is like the worldly leaders that we have to deal with, these worldly individuals that have no affections for the Lord but try to draw people away, even in the name of Christ. I think if you look at just different cults throughout the years and more cults that are to come, there's always someone that claims that they are the Messiah. I mean, we're in San Francisco. The charismatic movement, in a lot of ways, began here and it moved down to L.A. But it was individuals that claimed that they have this unique divine revelation from the Lord or that they claim to be Jesus. 
I mean, I've, I've, t- I've spoken to people that claim that they are the Messiah, that they've come, uh, that they've returned, and they're usually like a homeless person or some weirdo that has no influence or anything, and they can't, they don't know my name, they don't know how many hairs on my head, they have no supernatural ability, but yet they claim to be the Messiah. Now, though there might be individuals like that that we can easily dismiss, there might be other individuals that are more clever, that are more witty and, and, and more winsome because they know how to bend God's word. And that's the reality, that when we look to God's word, that's, we need to know that God has revealed himself in his word, and, and God will never contradict himself when it comes to his word. There may be people that claim to be the Messiah, but the way that they live and the way that they interact with you and the way that they think about life are oftentimes contradictory to scripture. So don't be misled by these individuals that claim to be the Messiah. But then the question is this, then how will we know if the Messiah has, 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 is truly the Messiah? If there's all these individuals that seem to even be able to do supernatural things, how do we know if the, if the Messiah is truly here? Well, I think when you look at the book of Revelation, Revelation 19 seems, seems to indicate that when Christ returns, it's going to be something that everyone is aware of. Revelation 19, verse 11 John writes when it comes to the second coming of Christ, he said, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is talking about Jesus coming back. And also interesting note, this word heaven opened is the same word that's described when Jesus was getting baptized and the heavens opened up. So just like how the people that saw Jesus get baptized and the sky tore apart, and then God spoke and said, this is my beloved son. Well, Jesus is going to come back in the same way. The heaven's going to rip open. It's going to, we're going to get to get, I guess the rapture has already happened. But people are going to peer up into the sky and see this reality that's just beyond them. And Christ is going to come down from that. That is something that no false teacher is able to do. When you think about false teachers, they can be very eloquent. They can quote scripture. They can even act very humbly. But what Christians, what, what Christ uh, can do is something that these uh, non-believers and these false antichrists are unable to do. They're not able to rip the heavens open and ride down on a white horse. It's kind of like when Moses, when he was going against all of those Pharaoh's magicians. There were some things that the magicians were able to do, but at some point, the magicians had to give up. Like, okay, yeah, we can't make the whole ocean or the river into blood. We, we, don't, we can't conjure up some of these things. They are able to do some things that are similar to what Moses was doing, but at a certain point, they couldn't do it anymore. And that's the same thing between the Antichrist and, and the true Messiah. Some of the Antichrist might be able to do certain things that seems like something the Messiah would do, but the, in the end, Christ will reveal himself by coming down from the heavens on a white horse, and it will shock everyone. But what's even more horrifying is that when Christ returns, there are still people, knowing that he's the Messiah, will still try to wage war against the Lord. Because it says in later at the end of uh, chapter 19 of Revelation, it says, and the beast was seized, uh, yeah, and the beast was seized, and uh, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs and the presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire, uh, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came out from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. 
So even though there were people, even though there will be people in the end time that see this event, that see Christ coming down from the heavens, they know that he is the Messiah, but instead of bowing down to worship him, they choose to reject him and wage war against him. So that's how we know the true Messiah is here. That when, when he returns, it's going to be this grand event that everyone should be able to see. And it's going to be very clear because it's something that none of the Antichrist is able to do. So that's worldly leaders. Worldly leaders will come. Some will call, claim themselves to be Messiah. But yet we know that the true Messiah, when he returns, is going to be this magnificent event. So that's worldly leaders. Second, or third, we'll look at worldly, uh, worldly conflicts. Verse 7 and 8, worldly conflicts. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For, for nations will rise up against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famine. These things are merely beginnings of birth pains. Now, this is why we hold to a futurist view. Because people that believe that this, is, this has happened in the past, uh, or especially when it's like 70 AD or, or time of Christ or the apostles, there wasn't, at, even at that time when you look at historical accounts, the, war was, the world was not at war with itself. Yes, there were earthquakes. Yes, there were wars throughout. But it wasn't as big as what it says, says here. It says that there would be wars and rumors of war and that all the stuff had to take place. And that's just the reality of living in a fallen world post-Christ's resurrection and ascension. That we are going to suffer just the, the realities of living in a fallen world. There's going to be conflicts. There's going to be wars. There's going to be uh, earthquakes. There's going to be kingdoms rising against kingdoms. And and again, if you look at nations, it says here, nations uh, will rise up nations. At the time when Christ uh, ascended, <clears throat> there wasn't like all the nations were going against each other. It would be, be similar to, I, I, mean, I mean, I remember just reading this and studying this, and there, there were a lot of people that looked at, like, oh, World War II must be that event. I mean, or really World War I, they thought that was it. This is when Christ is going to return. And then Christ didn't return. They think World War II, now everyone's at war again. It would seem that it has to be this cataclysmic event where everyone is at war with each other. But it says, like, that's not the end, though. That's just the beginning of birth pains. And we're here in San Francisco we're, or in Bay Area or California. We're familiar with earthquakes. But yet the earthquake described here seems to be able to shake up everything to, like, the land mass is just going to be, like, radically altered. Everything that Jesus is describing here is saying, yeah, all of these things will take place. But even when they take place... It says here, do not be alarmed. Verse 7 warns us to not be alarmed. And I think that's just something that's very encouraging to know that these things are supposed to happen because this is what the fallen world is like. And even in the fallen world, sometimes Christians are on both sides, right? If you think about nations, you get rise up against nations, there's Christians on both sides. Kingdoms against kingdoms, there's Christians on both sides. We think about Earthquakes, there's, wherever it is, there are, there are bound to be Christians that are going to suffer. <clears throat> but yet, despite all of these things, we, do not, we shouldn't be alarmed by the reality that this is what the world is like. The news are, always good, are not, not always good at predicting the future. I mean, that's what, like, what the word forecast means, like, that you can kind of anticipate, but you can never fully know. All the things that the modern technology can try to predict they will never be able to know exactly what's going to happen. As Christians, when we see wars on the news, and you know, we have you know, America in some way is involved in two of them, or at least the world is watching two, that there might be more. 
But that is, shouldn't be alarmed to us. We shouldn't be discouraged by this. Not because the, we don't care about the life of individuals, but we shouldn't be alarmed in the sense of, oh, this must be the end. No, it says that, but it, both uh, verse 7 and 8, it says, but that is not the end yet, and this is the beginning of birth pains. And I, I know some, are there any mothers here? Yes, there are some mothers here. Okay, so if you ask anyone that's ever delivered a baby, they, they know, or, or have to give birth, they know what birth pain is like. It's just, it goes, it has this like, like, it's like a mount, it's like it goes up and down, and then, and then eventually it gets closer and closer. Um, I remember when Ruby was born, it, she was late, but I remember when Kelly said, I think I'm feeling it, and then it's like, and then she's good, then I'm feeling it, and then she's good, and it goes from like 30 minutes, and then it goes to like 25, then 10, then 9, then okay, now we go to the hospital. Uh, that's the idea here, that from, uh, that the end time, we, it will always seem that things will get bad, and it will be okay, and it will be bad, and okay. And then that time, though, is going to get shorter and shorter as time progresses. But no matter what happens, we as Christians must not be alarmed. This is what uh, is supposed to take place. If anything, this should motivate us to go and tell people about Jesus Christ. Because the world is always on edge. They're always alarmed by what they see on social media or on the news, and they don't have any uh, sense of hope. But as believers, what would make us stand out is to tell them, yes, this world is a bad place. It's a place that's filled with suffering. But as, as Christians, we point them to the kingdom that is to come. We point them to God's kingdom that, could only be, that we can only be part of if they turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Nations rise and nations fall. And Jesus is faithful through it all. Again, this is just the side effect of living in a fallen world. And when we see these uh, worldly conflicts happen, or even natural world conflicts, um, things that are just difficult, living in a fallen world, do not be alarmed. Uh, and then next we'll look at worldly persecution. So we looked at um, the judgment of, of Jerusalem or the judgment of the temple. We see worldly leaders and worldly conflicts. And lastly, we'll look at Worldly persecutions. Verse 9. But see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they lead you away, delivering you up, do not worry. Do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. So we'll stop there for now, but just to continue on, you see that there's just going to be this internal conflict between the way that Christians live and those around them. We're going to be, Christ is saying that they're going to be thrown to the courts. This is this, this actually the word for Sanhedrin, which, is mean, which just basically means that there will be religious people that are going to persecute us for our faith. And we know that this happens in the world now. Actually, throughout history, if you look at uh, the time of Bloody Mary, it was the Roman Catholics against the Protestants. Or even basically the entire Reformation, it was the Catholics against, um, against Christians. And now in the Middle East, you see uh, Muslims against Christians. If you go to uh, certain Asian, Asian countries, it's Hinduism against Christians or Buddhism against Christians. It's just religious persecution from other false groups. And it said, you'll stand before governors and kings. That's like, 
these are like Gentile kings. These are people that are like atheists or people that aren't doing anything in the name of God. They just hate Christianity because of who they worship. And if you look at the book of Acts that comes after this, uh, after, you know, the Gospels, you know that that is the case. That the Apostle Paul went through all of this. He was beaten by the Jews. He was, put, he was uh, tried by the Gentiles. He went through all of it. And we should not expect that our lives should be different from any of the saints that come before. Because if we are suffering for the faith by whether religious people or secular people, we're in good company. But then Jesus says this in verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Now, when you read this, some people, at least for me when I was younger, I thought, okay, good, that means the world is not going to come and end because I know that the world, not everyone, not every um, country or people group have a translation of the Bible, so I just need to wait that out. I just need to wait. There is a museum in, in, in Washington, D.C. called the Bible Museum, and they have in that museum, like, different Bible translations. And I think they said that's only, like, 40%. So if, if I saw, if I knew that in a younger me, I'd be like, okay, great, that means there's still 60% of time left. But I don't think that's exactly what it's saying here, that it has to be, like, you have to have some sort of Bible translation as, and everyone has to hear the gospel. It may seem that way. If you are like a historist, you know, like you have mentioned like historic point of view, like you use a newspaper, you try to use a Bible and compare the two, you may be tempted to think, okay, see, we have all these chat GPT and translation apps. That means that everyone's going to hear the gospel. I think that's, that can be one way to look at it. But it seems to me that in the book of Revelation, it seems like at the end, before Christ actually returns, there's going to be angels declaring to the world that the Messiah is coming. Somehow, at that point, everyone will, will hear this message, and that's right before Christ returns. So that could be any time. I'm not saying just because of technology that's going to be. I think the angels are going to go and declare that Christ is coming, and that's how everyone in all the world will know that the time is near. So again, if you look at it, if you interpret it in terms of like a historic way, like, okay, it's looking newspaper and then looking at the Bible, that you might jump to that conclusion. But I think if you just look at the totality of Scripture, you can conclude that, like, this event happens in the book of Revelation, that there's a connection between Christ's prophecy here and the fulfillment that we will see in, in the book of Revelation. So then he continues on in the life of the believers, this in verse 11, and when they lead you away, delivering you, do not worry beforehand about what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Um, again, this is not to say that you don't study God's word. Uh, it's not that like, okay, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to give me everything I need to say without any uh, knowledge of God's word. I think it just means that when you are going through those trials, when you're suffering, God will give you peace in that moment. God will make you not afraid. And, he, and you'll say things, mainly probably just declaring uh, the faithfulness of the Lord, the gospel itself. And the reason why you're able to do that is not because of your own strength, but because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. I think this is why he tells us, do not worry. Because again, anxiousness is a sin. And he's saying that don't worry about those times. You don't need to plan in your mind all of the apologetic answers. But you just need to know, as, you, as long as you know the biblical truth, and as you study God's word, at the, at the right time, God will give you and draw to mind the things that you need to say. I think... One thing about evangelism uh, that, you know, and again, one thing about evangelism, what I find is that the more you know about God's word, sometimes there are things you forget. 
But then when you're talking and dialoguing with someone, sometimes they'll bring up something or a question, and, and then you think of a verse that comes to mind. You just, it's just like you, there's passages that come to the forefront of your mind, and you, at least for me, from my experience, sometimes that's just, it's amazing to see. Like, oh, yeah, I remember that there's this part of the Bible that talks exactly about what you're thinking about. And you, know, you might not be, be thinking about that passage. Uh, it's just by God's grace that he might make you remember things. And I think that's why he says do not worry. Again, it's not to say don't study for God's word, but it's just that when you're in those moments, especially toward the times of persecution, God will give you the right opportunity, and God will give you the right word to say in those times. Verse 12, and brother will betray brother to death, and father and a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. A family is like the most basic institution. And Jesus is saying, even in those times, in those relationships, family will turn against each other because of their faith. I mean, I think if you look at the headlines now when it comes to all the gender issues, we see that. Oh, my parents are this way, and they don't accept my life, and then they tell other people. And then usually the parents are blasted in social media or they're put on the news as being bigots. We see kind of like the foretaste of all of that. But that's not even close, doesn't even come close to what Jesus is saying. It's like this is, they will be, they'll betray their family. This word betray here is the same word. It's a very specific word, and it's used to describe Judas betraying Jesus. Again, you and I uh, should not be surprised that we will be betrayed because Jesus was betrayed. He was betrayed by someone close to him. Then why, wouldn't, why should we expect any less for us in our faith? So we, have, we go through all these internal conflicts, but yet we're called to endure. Look at verse 13. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. I think it's interesting where it says you'll be hated because of my name. This is not the first time Jesus told them they'll hate you because of me or they hate you because they hate me first. Uh, basically what Jesus is trying to encourage the disciples here is like, don't take it personally. They don't hate you because of your ethnicity. They don't hate you because of your profession. They don't hate you because of what you have. They will hate you because of your faith in me. But yet he tells them, but the one who endured to the end, he will be saved. It may sound like here that there's some sort of workspace salvation that you have to endure, otherwise you won't make it to heaven. But I don't think that's exactly what it's saying. It's not saying that you can't have momentary weakness because all the disciples had that momentary weakness. Peter denied Jesus three times in one evening. So it's not to say that you don't have weakness or moments where you fail, but it seems to indicate in the text that when you fail, there's a brokenness that you would make yourself realize, okay, I was wrong. I'm going to recant from my recanting and then, and then put my faith back in Christ and endure to the end. This word endure is something that we've been, we should be familiar with, especially on Sunday when we're learning about Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, we're talking about enduring, like being able to hold on, to look to Christ, to continue to be faithful to him, because that's what's going to, he is the one that's going to bring us to the end. We will be, if we're faithful to him, the Lord will, will not separate, will, will be able to help us through all the way until the very end. I mean, Romans chapter 8 tells us that, you know, not even principalities and angels and wars and famine, all these bad things and that happens in the world, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. And what 
keeps a believer endure in those very difficult times is to remember God's love for you. When you remember God's love for you, what he has done for you, it will motivate you to continue to live faithfully until the very end. So how should we deal with this? How do we endure during times of difficulty? We remember what Christ has done for us. We remember God's word. We remember that he tells us to not to worry, to not be anxious, and to be on guard. All these things that we already know from God's word, we have to do these things, and God will draw us all the way till the end. I think every Christian should read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, because uh, I think it's a very helpful tool to see God's faithfulness throughout the time when Christians were being persecuted. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a book that's written. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a deacon at the time that wrote in, during time of reign of uh, Bloody Mary uh, when she was killing all of the Christians. And he wrote this one account about two individuals, Simon Miller and Elizabeth Cooper. These two individuals were not, they're not married, they're just happened to be tried and killed on the same time. And it said here, on, Ju on July 30th, 1557, Simon Miller and Elizabeth Cooper were both led to the stake. It was set up in a field outside Norwich. When the twigs were lit, Elizabeth Cooper was afraid and cried out. When Simon Miller heard her cry, he put his hand toward her and asked her, to be strong and of good cheer. He said, for good sister, we shall have a joyful meeting hereafter. Upon hearing her companion's words, the woman seemed reassured and stood still and quiet as one almost glad to finish the hard trial which she had begun. Then she and her companion committed their souls to the Almighty God and thus ended their lives. How does someone like Simon Miller or Elizabeth Cooper or John the Baptist or, or any martyr throughout all of church history, what kept them faithful until the end? What kept them, what gave them the ability to endure until the very end? It is remembering the words of God, remembering that the suffering in this life pales in comparison to the glories of what we'll have in him with him one day that for us to live as Christ and to die as gain, that we have Jesus Christ, that he's all that we want. He is our prize. He is our goal. He's the one that we love the most. That is what keeps a believer enduring until the very end. And I trust that if you look at this section here about God's word, as he's warning us about what's going on, we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be alarmed. But know that this is just living in a fallen world is going to be difficult, and we will be persecuted for our faith maybe sooner rather than later. But no matter what happens to us, remember God's word, that when all of this is said and done, he is faithful through it all. And I hope that as you look to, I hope that now, especially when things are seemingly easy in your life, when there's moments where it seems not as difficult, that you start cherishing God's word in your heart so that you will not deny him or sin against him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word, and we're just reminding us that this world is going to be filled with people that hate Christians. This world is loaded with people that, that despise us because they despise you first. Lord, help us now to, to fortify our souls with your word, to be anchored by your word so that when those times come, 
that we will not waver, that we will endure until the very end. Lord, thank you for your word. In the son's name I pray. Amen.